0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 8 of Bandit Fiction Presents, our monthly podcast. We are a not-for-profit digital publisher focused on new and emerging writers, although anyone is welcome to submit, and monthly we do readings of some of our favourite things that we've published. If you'd like to read what we've published, or submit something of your own, check us out at www.banditfiction.com. The three stories we'll be reading this month are The Packed House by Isaac D. Williams
1: The Harvestman by E.M. Duffield Fuller and Dama Bianca by Ersker Vidoni Before we get into those stories, though, we must give a shout-out to our readers,
0: listeners, community, but especially our patrons. Piers Pennington David Brown Sam Huish Danny G. Champkin, Stephen Thompson, Sophie Rain, Gary Evans, Ola Ismail, Ryan Raw raven Joe Butler, Zach Copeland-Green, Kevin Bonfield, Randy Workman, and Jake McAuliffe. If you'd like to find out how to become a patron, with special perks including exclusive discounts and being able to nominate stories for this very podcast, just head over to our website. Now, this episode is going to be a little different than usual. It is a one-man show for the moment. I will be reading all three stories for this episode. I hope you still find them enjoyable. Our first reading of this episode is The Pact House by Isaac D. Williams. The morning air was unseasonably warm as Haytham made his way towards the Pact House. He wore a long, thick and wool lined coat, and even though it made him sweat, he made no effort to remove it. The packed House wasn't the building's official name, but nobody used the official name these days. There was no need for pretenses, no need for a false name that was almost certainly some elaborate pun. Perhaps it was used in fancy reports by some bureaucrat somewhere. Perhaps those who worked for it used it as part of their grotesque pantomime, but all others just called it the packed House. Haytham's appointment was at midday, but he arrived five minutes early. A mixture of nerves and a desire to get things over with propelled him forwards. Even so, he had allowed himself a moment's thought He could quite easily have made himself late standing outside the packed house with one hand on the door. Every time had been the same. It was more than just fear, it was like the world itself was saying to keep that door shut. And just like the previous two times he'd been there, he pushed himself forward and ignored it. What greeted him on the other side was an aesthetically pleasing, pleasantly cool reception area with easy-listening music piped in through unseen speakers. A pleasant nightmare, if there ever was one. Hatham approached the reception, and a well-dressed young woman looked up from her computer. Ever the façade, ever the front. "'Hello, Mr Willard,' she said without ever asking for his name. No name-badge on her front, no introduction. "'Here to see Mr Ryman, I assume?' It was good. The polite smile on her face reached her eyes. i have an appointment, Hatham said, tearing his eyes away from that smile. The first time he'd come here, he'd tried to feign comfort. After that, they'd made it very clear that such efforts were not appreciated. And he'd never tried again. Of course, the receptionist said, tapping the keyboard several times. Not nearly enough times to have actually gotten any information. But Haytham was fairly sure she didn't need to. To discuss the terms of your contract... It could have been Haytham's imagination, but her smile seemed to have turned slightly cruel. Smug. Have a seat. Mr. Ryman will be with you shortly. Would you like something to drink? No, Hatham said. He'd spoken to a few people about this place, and not one of them had accepted anything but a contract. Haytham wasn't going to be the one who broke tradition. As always, Haytham wondered if they were going to make him wait. After all, that was the stereotype about these people. Lawyers. Teachers. Politicians. People with power, regardless of how they got it. They love to make you wait. There was something incessant and maddening about the calm, relaxing music that cut through him, and the reception area wasn't exactly bursting with conversation. Pale, nervous people sat, eyes either darting around without pause or remaining fixed to the floor. What few glimpses of eye contact Hayther made with others was fleeting and fearful. And so, when the receptionist materialised, as always at exactly midday, the very instant, The hour changed. Haytham was almost grateful. Mr. Ryman will see you now, she said with that same genuine, cruel smile. May I take your coat? No. Of course, sir. Was it Haytham's imagination, or was there just a second of hesitation there? Victories were few and far between in this place, and so he was going to take that as one got to his feet and the receptionist moved to direct him I know the way Haytham said pushing past her most people aren't so eager to get there the receptionist said I hope you've got something good to bargain with the front had finally slipped enjoy your appointment Mr. Willard Ryman's office was on the third floor Haytham would never claim to be an expert in the inner workings of, well, whatever this place was. But he was fairly sure that it wasn't a sign of particular seniority in a building with many, many more floors. But as much as he wanted to find amusement in that, he couldn't. If Ryman was just a mid-level goon, he dreaded to think what the people in charge were like. The corridors he walked through were white, sterile and cool, with art on the walls that Haytham forgot even he was looking at it. But just between those three floors there was a difference. The temperature increased, barely perceptibly, but it increased. The art was still forgettable, but there was something about it that turned his stomach uneasy if he looked too long. For just a second he was tempted to keep going. To see what the building was like the further up he went, see how else it changed, and see where it dropped the curtain of normalcy. But he didn't. He took a right and let himself into Ryman's office. The man behind the desk had introduced himself as Albert Ryman the first time he and Haytham met, and Haytham hadn't believed it for a second. He was tall and thin with white hair and black glasses that framed his face. He always wore impeccable suits. But it was all a little too perfect. The hair too well maintained, the jacket and shirt too complimentary, the tie knot always impossibly symmetrical. His glasses weren't crooked in the slightest. Everything about him seemed cultivated, right down to the pretense of humanity. "'Mr. Willard,' Ryman said, a warm smile breaking out over his face, displaying perfect teeth. "'Are you sure I can't call you Hatham? The same question every time, a recording. The reflection was the same on every occasion. "'Incredibly, no,' came the reply, and Ryman just laughed. "'A consistent man, that's what I like to see. Take a seat. Would you care to remove your coat?' "'I'd rather keep it on, thanks.' "'Of course, of course. "'Whatever you wish.' Hatham knew what Ryman thought he was doing, "'acquiescing to his little demands, "'the name, the coat, just because he could, "'because he was sure he was going to win in the long run. "'So, I understand you're here to discuss your contract?' "'That's right.' Ryman's friendly smile turned politely confused. Well, please enlighten me on what there is to discuss. The terms. Oh, the terms you agreed to? I'll indulge you. What do you dislike about the terms? I seem to recall you've benefited quite nicely from them. How's your career going? Fine. It's going well. But the price is too much. Ryman blinked, a crafted frown dipping over his face. "'Too much? Too much? Surely, Mr. Willard, you knew what you were willing to give when you signed it. "'What's changed?' "'I've, uh, re some things.' "'Well, I'm afraid one of those things wasn't the contract, Mr. Willard. "'And that's the problem with contracts. Once they're signed, they're rather binding.' kind of the point then how about you change that get out that pen of yours and change a few words make the price something less barbaric Raymond's performance had to be credited he looked genuinely remorseful as he shook his head but why for you when we haven't for so many others I really am sorry Mr. Willard truly I am but a deal is a deal There is no escape clause. There is no loophole. There isn't even any fine print. You signed it and you really must stick to it. And if I don't? I think you would find the requirements of our deal to be a blessing compared to the consequences of breaking it, Hatham. I didn't say you could call me that, Hatham said and leaned over the desk. Find a reason to change it. I can't. Not like that. Ryman paused before he spoke again. But maybe there's something we can do. Tell me. Another deal. Ryman said. And then from somewhere above them in the building, there came a shriek. an Agonised scream. Faint, but painfully audible. An animal howl caught in a steel trap. Nasty business, Ryman chuckled, an almost embarrassed look on his face. But justified, I'm quite sure. Where were we? Oh yes, another deal. One mitigating your responsibilities for this particular contract. But of course, it won't come free. There will be... The gunshot rang out across the room and Ryman stiffened. His uniformly green eyes dropped to his chest, where crimson soaked through his shirt, and then he went limp. The smoking gun was in Haytham's hand, his coat undone. It was ridiculous, after how deafening the gunshot had been in the confined space. But in the sudden silence that seemed to fall over the entire building afterwards... Hatham's own laboured breathing sounded like a gale to his ears. To say that the act had been uncalculated, impassioned, would be a lie. He'd brought the gun with him. He'd kept it concealed. Surely, at some point, he'd had some plan for what to do after killing Ryman. But for the life of him, he couldn't remember it. And it could well be for the life of him. Was he to run? Shoot the next person who came in through the door? Set the office on fire? or just listen to the rapid drip of scarlet copper and contemplate the murder he had just committed. An eternity passed in the mere moments before the door opened and Albert Ryman walked through. Dressed in the same perfect suit, with the same perfect hair and teeth as the corpse in the chair, but with noticeably fewer viscera on display. Now that was quite impolite, Ryman said, making his way towards the desk. His tone suggested nothing more serious than a raised voice had occurred. Luckily, I'm willing to look past it. You wouldn't believe how many clients have tried that over these little disputes. <laughs> Hatham wanted to be sick as he looked at the impossibility before him, but even moving those involuntary muscles was more than his body could manage. His breath had frozen in his lungs. Ryman reached his chair and moved his own corpse out of it before looking at the sheer volume of ichor that soaked into the seat and the unidentifiable pile pieces of biology that adorned it. I think I might stand, actually. Now, we were discussing a new contract. Finally, a muscle in Haytham's body moved. It was to drop the gun at his feet. There was no other choice. Numbly, he nodded his agreement, and Ryman smiled. And once again, that was The Packed House, by Isaac D. Williams. Next up is The Harvestman, by E.M. Duffield Fuller. She always felt happy at harvest time. Her leather satchel bag, currently empty, studded across her thigh with every step. The tune lingering in her mouth hummed cradle-soft across the curdled skies. One for the damned harvest-kissed, two for the fortunate mist, and three for the hungry morn dawning. Her footsteps scuffed along the gravel in time to the beat. She had been tramping a long way, but was almost there now. Blackbirds, cowering in the brambles, took flight as she walked by. The birds always knew. Four for the birds in the winds, five for the red skies, blood-tinged, and six for the shadowless warning. It was an old song, half prophecy, half war-cry, now condensed to nothing more than a children's tune to hum on long and winding roads. The sound of it filled the empty air before her. She squinted a dark eye over the tree line at the crimson dawn lingering behind those clouds. The red sky was a warning, though she doubted he would listen to it. They rarely did. She did not have much of the dawn left, but her feet kept their steady pace. She was not in a rush. She was never in any rush. On seven you'll pay for your sins, when eight come, those legs long and thin, now it's time, now the harvestman's yawning. A farmhouse crept into view on the edge of the horizon, already awake despite the early hour. The farmhands kept long days in the autumn, some longer than others. It wouldn't make a difference. Let them watch if they wished to. They wouldn't be able to stop her collecting what she was owed. That was the very first rule of the Harvestman. You could not just take. That was stealing. That was theft. There had to be payment first. Not cold coin, a cheap and worthless currency. But older treasures from when the world was still blood smattered from its birth. Fear, grief and anger. The only thing was worth keeping The human had not known what she had done at the time. She had not known what she had summoned with her wordless screaming as his thick fingers clawed their way over her mouth, cramming it shut. But the will had been there, vicious and cruel, full of spite and fear and bile, and it had awoken the harvestman. Perhaps the girl would not have done it if she had known. It did not matter much. The call had been sent. The payment had been given and it had set into motion things too heavy, too powerful to be stopped. The footsteps crunched to a slow stop as the bineweed-bound hedges abruptly gave way to a wooden gate. The man leant upon it, his dawn-light shadow lay thick across the scrubbed earth. He did not notice that she cast no shadow of her own. He startled as he saw her. Something flickered in his eyes. Mistrust, suspicion, perhaps even snippets of some childhood song echoed warningly in the back of his mind, but it soon died. No one ever expected the wheat and cider-haired girl before them to be a harvestman, even if they still believed in such things. They focused on the sea swell of her curves and the smoothness of her skin, or those dainty freckles smattering her delicate snub nose. They never noticed the black sheen of her eyes until it was too late. The man's gaze darted up and down the road to ensure they were alone. He leaned towards her. His breath stank like old lies and stale beer, and the pattering thud of his heart echoed loudly in her ears. She could smell it from here, fetid and decaying. Pungent, the scent oozing in greasy waves with every pulsing beat. Her throat prickled as the hunger began to ache there, urging her to rush before Dawn died and she missed her only chance. That was the second rule of the Harvestman. You could only seek a kiss once. If he had not succumbed before the morning rose true, he would go free. Sometimes she had to chase them. She only ever walked, of course, but she was fast and inevitable. She appeared abruptly when they thought they had escaped, with that same steady calm today though her quarry seemed inclined to linger his eyes flared with an echo of her own hunger they trawled from her hips to her breasts and stuttered there early for you to be out miss he said he did not say anything She always struggled with the human tongue but her dark eyes blinked he seemed a bit Unnerved by her wordless watching. Are you alone? It's not safe for folk out here by themselves. Especially for a pretty young lady like you. Unsavory people about, you know? His eyes darted down the empty lane again and then back to her body. She took a step forward until their breaths mingled in the silence, every hiss and hush dancing together. She tiptoed up until she could see her own reflection in his wide, startled eyes. The realisation dawning far too late within them. Fear slicked through him, and she smiled as she bestowed her kiss. His lips frozen to hers, she had no choice but to copy. She stretched her mouth into a yawn. He choked upon a whimper of fear as eight long legs scuttled out from her mouth and into his. Insidious, blade-sharp and whisper-thin, his body stiffened. His only movements were the jerky crescendo of his heartbeat, the pounding pulse and those hot, sticky breaths pattering into her like a thunderstorm, till fear-bright eyes faded to sour milk. As the legs withdrew with solemn slowness, back past her teeth and down her throat, he slumped, falling from her lips to the floor beneath. A thin dribble of crimson smudged his chin. She spat out the drained, withered lump into a palm and examined it with wintry detachment. It always surprised her how small their hearts were in the end. She slipped it into her bag and wiped her mouth with the back of her hand. A small smile settled on her lips as she walked away. The old familiar tune hummed down the empty road, setting the birds to flight. So, that was The Harvestman by Elizabeth Margaret Duffield Fuller. And we have Elizabeth with us here now to discuss a little bit about the story and what went into it and where it, perhaps where it's gone. So, Elizabeth,
1: could you introduce yourself for us, please? Uh, My name is Lizzie Duffield-Fuller. I live in Wales with my husband and my two young sons. I write fantasy stories under the name E.M. Duffield-Fuller and Gothic Victorian romance novels under the name Beth Fuller. I'm currently doing a PhD in Victorian literature at Aberystwyth University. Fantastic, fantastic. On the subject of
0: the Harvestment, Lizzie, yeah. what was the inspiration for the piece? Because it's obviously very folklory, and that's something I, I latched onto immediately, and I was like, this is something I'm interested in reading, but what went into it originally?
1: Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I love folklore. I've always been really interested in folklore. I think it's the way that it... There's always something across every different culture, and they take these massive concepts about life and death and what it means to be human, and then we condense them down into nursery rhymes and lullabies and stories for children. And I don't know, I find that really fascinating. And I, th- I think the way that people come up with their own different creatures the monsters that we have across different cultures. Mm. And the way that that says things about how we feel as a society and as a culture is really interesting. And one of the things about that, I suppose, was, especially this idea about spiders, I think, and spiders as monsters. Mm -hmm. So I suppose one of the main catalysts for this story was I stumbled across an article about harvestmen, completely by chance. And I fell down this rabbit hole researching them and found out that they were these kind of daddy long legs type creatures. But the idea that they were harvesting rather than hunting was something that was really interesting to me. Uh Taking something that we often see as predatory Especially in fantasy, you know, you think about um, Shelob and Aragog and all these massive, wicked, evil spiders. Mm-hmm. And we tend to see them as something that is almost innately evil, I suppose. And they're not, they're just animals. And then taking that and making it something that's not evil, kind of deconstructing that, I suppose, and, and pulling it apart and making it something that is more about finding justice than being hunted. I suppose, was where
0: I was going with that. Yeah, I think that definitely comes through in the overall narrative, because it still has that almost predatory aspect to it, but it doesn't come across as, as you mentioned, as that inherent maliciousness. mm, mm. <laughs> It's almost clinical in its detachment in a lot of ways. It's it's doing it because it's its job, not because, you know, there's any real joy or any emotion in it, really. It's, it's as animals do. They're doing it because it's what they do, not because it's what they've chosen to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So have you continued to work on the piece at all in, in the time since it was submitted, which has obviously been a little while now?
1: Worked on it a bit. Mm. It has gone on the back burner because I've had a lot of other projects on. <laughs> but yeah, no, I am mm. still working on it. Mm. I'm um, I'm trying to expand it at the moment into a full length novel. But it's not the the harvestmen are not the main characters at all. They are part of the kind of background world building, I suppose.
0: Mm. But
1: they have the same function that they do in the short story in a way that they are kind of the arbiters of justice for people who have been let down by society. Mm -hmm. So I think quite often our society is unjust, and not even necessarily maliciously. There are just things that happen that you can't prove and that you will never get justice for. And the idea of having creatures that provide that role that will bring you justice that you deserve, I think is was probably a bit of a wish fulfillment fantasy, isn't it? But um, (laughs) I think they provide that kind of role in the story. And in many ways, the story has some dark elements in it, but they provide a kind of balance where there is going to be some kind of justice for people who otherwise won't be given any.
0: Absolutely. On on the topic of wish fulfilment, I feel like all fantasy writing falls into that category to a certain extent.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> but no, I can definitely see how that linked together and the, this almost supernatural agent, well, I say almost, this supernatural <laughs> agent of justice very much fits that bill in the fact that justice will come regardless of whether or not anybody else cares about it.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Mm.
0: You mentioned that you've continued to work on it, obviously, and you've sort of lightly touched on this topic again by saying that the, the Harvestmen are, are not the main character. But mm-hmm. what have you changed about it? Or if you would prefer not to answer that question to keep your book a secret, what would you change about the harvestman story, if anything?
1: Um, I think that is um, a really tough question to answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, this is the one that always stumps
1: people. <laughs> I think there's that quote, isn't there? I've always really liked it. It says something like, art is never finished, it's only abandoned. And I think that's true. I think you can change pieces again and again and again. And you never really know if you're making it better or not. And I think at some point you just have to walk away and you have to say, okay, this is what it is. So one piece that I changed a lot when I was writing it was it started off as a paragraph and it ended up as a sentence because I just kept cutting it back and cutting it back. But there was this moment in The Harvestman where there's this hint of what had happened to the girl. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I really struggled with finding the balance with. Because I think, obviously, in order for The Harvestman to be seen as just and not as predatory, there had to be some hint of why it was called. But I think quite often in fantasy, violence and especially sexual violence against women can be very gratuitous and almost voyeuristic. Yeah, that's the word I would use
0: as well voyeuristic.
1: Mm. Mm. And that was something that I didn't want to fall into. So I changed that a lot when I was editing it. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the biggest change that I made whilst I was working on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Fair enough. I, I don't really have any other comments to to that. You wouldn't take the words right <laughs> out of my mouth in that regard. As someone who is a published author yourself and is planning to publish more, presumably, considering you're <laughs> working on this novel, here comes the difficult
1: question of what advice do you have for other aspiring authors? Okay, I thought about this really hard mm. and I came up with three pieces of advice. My first one is that Being a writer is about more than just writing. If you want to be a career author, you need to do everything. You need to wear all the hats. So you need to do the marketing and the social media and you need to get the reviews. You can't just write the book and be done with it. And I recently read an article that said that mailing lists are the most effective way to sell books. So if you are planning to sell books, I would recommend getting a mailing list. My Second piece of advice is that you will get bad reviews. Everyone, everyone ever gets bad reviews. So if you think that they're fair, you take what you can from them and get better. And if you think that they're not, you try to just grow a bit of a skin about it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And finally, my third piece of advice is don't be afraid to let a project rest. When I first began writing, as soon as I finished it, I would go back to the beginning and start editing it. Like, oh, I've finished the piece. I need to polish it. It needs to be good. But now I think that it's hard to find emotional clarity. Mm. It's hard to see the piece as a whole whilst you're still in the thick of the writing mentality. Mm. So I think it's important to take a little while, a fortnight, maybe a month, and clear your mind from it, and then come back to it fresh.
0: I absolutely agree on on all three of those points, but especially the final one. Sometimes it's, it's quite stark, really, when you take a break from a piece for one reason or the other. And then you come back to it and reread what you'd written before. Sometimes you're like, oh, wow, that was actually really good. I'm proud of that. And then sometimes you read it as like, wow, that's terrible. I'm going to change that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But you you need that space to be able to have that wider field of view, as you say.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes by the time you've got to the end of a project, you get very disheartened with it and you feel like I've been working on this project for however long it's been. And you can't see the wood through the trees, I suppose. And you just need to, as you say, you know, you won't think that it's good again until you come back to it. Mm -hmm.
0: When you've been staring at the same like words every day for like, you know, maybe a year, two years, however long it's taken you, you, there is an inevitable part of like, you're going to get sick of it. Mm. And so you need that space to be able to come back and judge it with the fresh head that everyone else will see it with when they see it for the first time. Yeah, definitely. On the final notes, where else can we find your work?
1: Okay, I have the first novel in the Dark Watch trilogy coming out with Heroic Books in March. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. It's called <laughs> Felgrim, and um, so you keep an eye out for that. Um, I've also had some Gothic Victorian uh, romance stories published with Divine Destinies. So you can find them on their website, or you know, on online, or you can keep up to date with my new releases on my websites. My fantasy website is emduffieldfuller dot com, and my other website is bethfullerbooks.com.
0: Fantastic. And um, just to clarify, the Dark Watch uh, novel series—that is the series regarding the Harvestman. Uh, no, no. Oh, is it no. not actually? Is it different? No. It's oh, not... Fair enough. <laughs> mm. Does the Harvestman-related series have a name? yet, yeah. Or is that still a project in progress?
1: Oh, no, it's very much in the first draft series. Ah, fair enough. A <laughs> <laughs> the projects on the go at once. Yeah. No problem, no problem.
0: Okie dokie. I think we will draw that to a close there, then.
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me. Thank you very much for joining us, Lizzie. And once again, that was E.M. Duffield Fuller speaking about their story, The Harvestman. Our final piece for the day is Dama Bianca by Erska Vidoni. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess who lived in a beautiful castle. And all she ever wanted was for a noble prince to come and sweep her off her feet. After some trials the young prince finally found the princess and they lived happily ever after with their beautiful children in his castle in a far off land. This is how fairy tales usually go, right? Well, this is not a fairy tale after all. The beginning doesn't change but there won't be and and they lived happily ever after at the end. There was indeed a beautiful young woman, and there was a noble knight. And all she wanted was to have husband and child, and all he wanted was to have a wife to fill his big, old castle. When the young lady first laid her eyes on the knight at one of the balls in the neighbourhood, she thought him to be the most elegant and handsome man that she'd ever seen. He noticed her noticing him, and the deal was sealed. That was to be his future wife. A dance, a laugh and a walk later they were engaged, married and settled in the castle. The lady had everything she'd ever hoped for. A loving husband who doted on her. A huge home which had a mesmerising view of the vast sea and the land beyond. And a few months later a beautiful baby boy graced their lives. She thought she might burst with joy. Every second Friday of every month, the two hosted a ball. They were both so fond of dancing. All of the noble families of the area were invited. Elegant women in colourful gowns were swinging around, accompanied by their men, dressed in their best frocks. The hall was decorated. Flowers were hanging from the pillars, white, pink and blue ones. Always the same colours. Candles were lit, and everything was sparkling bright. In the ballroom, the orchestra is playing upbeat melodies while numerous couples were dancing in the middle of the room, young ones and old ones alike, swinging to the rhythm of the music, jumping, twirling, turning, but always laughing. Everyone was jubilant, the atmosphere one of festivities. But something is missing from this joyful picture in the ballroom. Where is our hostess? Ah, there she is. The hostess was floating around the main hall, talking to one group and then the next, keeping her guests entertained. How are you, ma'am? Are you enjoying yourself, sir? So good of you to come. So good of you to come. Everyone loved her. They all had a smile spared only for her, a kind word, a you look gorgeous tonight. This attention energised her, she fed on it, and an extra spring to her step made her turning around the room seem like she was floating on air. Why wasn't she dancing tonight, madame? they would ask. Oh, not tonight. But that was what she said every night. So why wasn't our madame dancing? Occasionally she would meet the eye of her husband standing with his friends, seeming to have a good time, but always on the fringes of the room, never venturing too much into the heart of the celebrations. She would glance at him occasionally, but she knew his eyes were on her all the time. They followed her turns, her springs, her twirls around the room. A smile was plastered on his face. "'Are you having a good time, my dear?' she would ask her husband when drifting past his group. "'Oh yes, darling, an excellent time.' And she was gone on to the next group. But the merriment, the dancing, the music, the laughing had to end at some time. It couldn't be eternal. And even though, unlike for Cinderella, the party for Our Lady didn't finish until the early hours of the morning, The carriage still had to turn back into a pumpkin. When all of the flowers were taken off of the pillars, the candles extinguished, the once bright hallways became quite dull. And the happy, smiling lady was just a lady. What we weren't allowed to see before, what the guests were too busy to notice, were the shadows hiding in the corners where the light of the party couldn't reach. And this is the real story. The first year or so of their marriage was idyllic. Our young lady couldn't believe how lucky she was. Her baby boy was born a year in, and every day she would spend as much time as she could with him. The little man filled her heart with love and pride, and she couldn't get enough of him. Her husband demanded all of the hours that she didn't dedicate to her boy, but she didn't mind, really. When the weather was nice, they would take long walks on the paths along the cliffs, and she could admire the beautiful sea. She never tired of that view, no matter how much time she spent there. The sea was never the same. It didn't just change from season to season, no, it was faster than that. It changed day to day, hour to hour. One time it was calm and turquoise, the next green and wavy, then thundery and grey when a storm was approaching, pink, red, orange, yellow at sunsets. The colours were all mirrored in the cliff rocks as well which were ordinarily so white that the light reflecting off them was almost blinding. But then they caught fire in the evening hours or darkened to a menacing grey in storms. Oh, what a scene! A gentle breeze would accompany her along the cliff edge, bringing the scent of the salty water with it. On rainy days, when they couldn't venture outside, her husband asked her to the library, and he would read to her by the fire. Read of heroic knights that slayed the dragons and saved the princesses, of wars raging in far-off lands, wars being won, wars being lost, wars never-ending. In the end, it was one such war that broke this idealness. The noble knight was called to arms, and he answered his call. A kiss for his son, one for his wife, and he rode away on his horse, dressed in his best suit of armour. Being without her husband for the first time in her marriage felt strange for our young lady. She wasn't used to being alone in such a vast castle. At night, the shadows seemed to terrify her. The howling of the wind became an unwanted sound. The room seemed colder and monotonous without him. How happy she was when he finally came back. And the presents he brought. For her and their son, so many presents. We must throw a ball to celebrate, they agreed. And so it was for years to come. Leave for war, return with presents, ball. The pattern kept repeating itself with one exception. After the third time he returned from the war, still full of new riches, the lady noticed a looming shadow over the knight's face, The darkness meant exclusively for her. After a kiss on his son's cheek, he doted on his hair. He turned her eyes, blazing with fire, a rage she'd never seen before. I heard what you've been doing in my absence. I I don't understand, my dear, she said, her voice calm in appearance, soothing. You've been throwing balls in my absence. She couldn't quite understand what had upset him. Was it the throwing balls part, or in the absence one? I i have. The castle is so big and empty, my dear, when you're gone, I needed the company to liven these dull days. Her explanation didn't abate his anger, but only made it worse. Flares were now sparking from his eyes, hitting her with full force. So you've been entertaining gentlemen to fill your days? Closer and closer he was to Our Lady an overbearing figure that appeared enlarged in his anger and made her cower. And their ladies, my dear gentlemen from the surrounding lands, and their... First blow. No balls in my absence. A simple statement, delivered with coolness and sternness. And then he turned and walked out of the room, just like that. The slap stunned her so much that she couldn't move for some minutes. Mind-blank, muscles paralysed, only the crying of her son which resonated through the room brought her back to reality. She had forgot the little boy was even there and worried that he had witnessed what had just happened. She hurried to him and tried to soothe him. As she picked him up, his small hand reached up and gently touched her still stinging, bright red cheek. It's all right, my little man. Despite that episode, the couple hosted a ball while the knight was home. All of the noble families of the area were invited. Elegant women in colorful gowns were swinging around, accompanied by their men dressed in their best frocks. The hall was decorated. Flowers were hanging from the pillars white, pink, and blue ones, always the same colors. Candles were lit, and everything was sparkling bright. In the ballroom, the orchestra was playing upbeat melodies, while numerous couples were dancing in the middle of the room, young ones and old ones alike, swinging to the rhythm of the music, jumping, twirling, turning, but always laughing. Everyone was jubilant, the atmosphere one of festivities. However, this time it was different for our young lady. She twisted and turned around the room, but her manners were not as carefree as they used to be. She didn't bestow as many smiles or pleasant words as she used to do. The spring in her step was gone, her gait heavier, grounded to the floor. Of course, no one noticed. Everyone was busy talking, dancing, having a good time. Not even her husband could see the change, her husband for whom this whole charade was intended. Earlier that evening, aiming to please him and trying to avoid another scene, the young lady set upon herself that she'll keep a distance from her guests, so that the knight wouldn't misunderstand her pleasantries for flirtation. But in vain. After all the guests had left and the candles were extinguished. This one came almost more of a surprise than the first one. After all, she hadn't done anything wrong. I'm not blind, my dear. You've been making eye contact with quite a few gentlemen tonight. Don't try to deny it, I was there! And she didn't. She could see the effort would be futile. Her husband was too far gone in his conviction for anything to change his mind, least of all something she herself would say. This episode scared our young lady so much, not because of the pain it had caused her, but because of the changed features on her husband's face that delivered it. So frightened was she for herself, and even more for the child, that in the long months the night was kept at war in far-off lands. She hauled herself and the child up in the castle, not ever taking any visitors, not leaving the fortress for, for her daily walks. No, she couldn't deny herself that little pleasure of walking along the cliff edge, gazing out at sea. Every day, at exactly the same time, she would spot two white swans gliding on the surface of the water, so elegant and so graceful. She envied them with all her heart. They were free. And yet, despite this, they chose to share their freedom with her, allowing her a glimpse of beauty in these dark days. The vast blue plain took her mind wandering to what could have been's and what will be's. She tried to predict the future, her future, their future as a family. But as much as she focused on this, strong gusts of wind would sweep the images away, abandoning her in the present. Nothing for you to see, the wind seemed to whisper. The past, that was even trickier. While what was to come didn't want to reveal itself, what had been was too painful for her to dwell on. A number of questions pierced through her mind. When did she go wrong? Could she have done anything differently during her marriage to prevent this? Or were the anchors issued much further than this in her younger years, when her vanity and desire led her to choose the knight with the prettiest and richest castle? When her husband was at home, she tried to be the best wife she could. And when he wasn't, she tried to be the best mother she could but all was in vain. The knight couldn't, or maybe didn't want to, see the effort she was making for the family. The balls at the castle became less and less frequent, and her husband sought the company of the bottle instead. The one constant in their life became his jealousy. Even though she turned herself into a recluse, nothing could have abated her husband's accusations. The fights between the two became more and more regular, increasing proportionally in frequency to the night's drinking. She even gave up on her walks. I know you're meeting your gentleman out there! There was nothing left for Our Lady but her young boy, to whom she dedicated all of her time and loved with all of her heart, making it her purpose to protect him from his volatile father. Then... One evening, after dinner, the knight's bad temper reached a new pinnacle. He was shouting with all his might at anyone and no one. Blinded by the wine and his ire, he was throwing around anything that happened to be underneath his hands. The noises were heard throughout the castle, and quite likely well beyond its walls, rivalling the storm that was raging outside. A chain reaction of events followed. The little one started sobbing uncontrollably. The mother tried to soothe him. The father got angrier and angrier still. Why won't the child shut up? The mother got more and more frightened. The need to protect her son above all else took over Our Lady. Her body and mind acted without any conscious thoughts behind them. She entrusted the boy to the nearest servant and ran outside, as she had hoped her husband followed her. She was running and running with all the strength she had in her, but even in his current state the night was faster. Even though it was pitch dark and the gushing rain obstructed her sight, she recognised where she ended up. Her beloved spot at the cliff's edge, her sanctuary. At that moment, though, it didn't bring her any peace. She only felt trapped. Her husband was ten metres away, weighing her options. Go left, go right. Behind, only void. Five metres away. Panic, fear pressing down on her, her shoulders pushing her to the ground. Two metres away, nowhere left to go. One metre. Zero. Push. Falling. Void. She was floating in the air. Her thoughts went only to her son. Oh please, someone protect him. Little did she know that her prayers were being heard, heard by the raging sea and the wild wind. In a mighty effort, Just before she would have hit the water, the gusts of wind lifted her up, placing her on the lowest stone perched out from the cliff. A wave rose up high above the surface and washed over her inert her body. Together, the two elements cemented her there in perpetuity. It is rumoured that every night Our Lady rose from her sleep and roamed the castle, haunting her husband, driving him to insanity, pushing out of his home and out of her son's life. Every morning she returned to her rock, protected by the elements and guarded by the two swans. Now she stands there still, a white lady, a white rock, eternally falling, eternally looking out at the sea, so close to the freedom she longed for. And with that, that brings us to the end of this slightly unusual episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, we thank you for your time and hope you've enjoyed the stories we brought to you this episode. If you have, please remember to like and share these podcasts and help spread these amazing stories to more people so that we can continue to help emerging writers find their feet. As a closing word, if you're interested in reading more of the stories and poems we've published or perhaps even want to be involved with the process, remember to head over to our website at www.banditfiction.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.